0: It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Generative artificial intelligence models like BARD and ChatGPT have rapidly become household tools. They're showing up in almost every context of life, but society has hardly had any time to prepare. Who's in charge of this issue?
1: Companies have to be accountable for the technology that they're deploying, and they have to make decisions about whether this is something you can and should deploy. And governments need to foster conversations among not just uh, companies, or a small set of companies, or just technologists. like They have to be societal conversations.
0: What kind of guardrails do we need to put in place around AI to keep us safe? And are the right people working on making that happen? Aspen Ideas to Go brings you compelling conversations presented at the Aspen Ideas Festival. A panel of experts from the tech industry, research world, and the public sector meet at the festival to talk about how to ensure AI doesn't cause more harm than good. Lila Ibrahim is COO of the Google AI company DeepMind. Christina Montgomery oversees privacy and trust at IBM and Alondra Nelson is a social science professor at the Institute for Advanced Studies. All three see potential benefits of AI, but also see the need to proceed carefully. CNBC tech journalist Deirdre Boza moderates the conversation. Here's Boza. I want to know what the makeup is here.
2: Put your hand up if you think that generative AI is a net benefit to society. Put up your hand if you think it's a net negative to society. There's a few. Put your hand up if you, know, if you just really are not sure. <laughs> Fair enough. I was at a, like I said, I was at a dinner in San Francisco, a lot of technologists around. Every single hand in the room was net benefit.
3: How do you guys feel about that? Is that something to be worried about, Lila? like any transformative technology i think there are um, benefits and risks and we have to be talking about the risks i think we have a lot we can learn from past technologies as well but i don't think any of us would be in this field and on this topic if we didn't believe in the net uh, net benefit and i'm hopeful we can talk about some of that because i actually think it's quite benefit to think uh, quite an opportunity to think about how ai might be a tool to help us with some of the world's greatest challenges I should
2: ask the question to all of you as well. I guess yours is net benefit, Christina, can you say?
1: Yeah, no, I would say the same. I absolutely agree that the potential for AI, and particularly the potential that's been generated re- you know, recently with foundation models, um, is hugely beneficial to solve some major societal problems. But obviously, we have to have these conversations about you know, how do we ensure that what we're using it for is beneficial. Yep. Um, Um, And not dangerous. And that's why we're here.
4: Um, Alondra, last one. I would say it's an open empirical question whether or not it's gonna be a net benefit. And I think we are early enough in the sort of cresting of this technology um, that there's a lot that we can do on this panel Mm -hmm. in this room um, to actually make it a net benefit. But I don't think the net benefit is going to be the sort of natural uh, end point that we we reach there. So I'm really encouraged um, that there's been several conversations here on AI because it's a conversation that um, we all need to have whether or not we're experts in the field or not
1: Mm -hmm.
2: let's put this another way we'll start with the positive what is your biggest hope for this platform shift
3: well i think um, most of the thing i'm most excited about is how ai can be used as a tool to really help us advance science to benefit humanity and one of the recent areas we've been doing work on is around the area of protein folding which is the building blocks of life And we've actually uh, used AI as a tool to help us solve a 50-year-old problem in biology, where we can predict the 3D structure of a protein. And now a million researchers are using the AlphaFold AI database to add add like a Google search to discover how a protein folds. And that's important because it's helping us understand diseases, it's helping us fight things like um, plastic pollution and industrial waste and coming up with new vaccines for malaria. So I think that's it. And we're just at the start of all of this. So that's the area I'm most excited about is how can we use AI tools um, to help us really understand the sciences. So that's the science aspect of it. Uh, Christina, what about you? What's your greatest hope for the technology?
1: I mean, those are great examples um, and I could offer similar ones, but I would, offer a different one in the context of education, for example. I think education is an area where we can apply AI to develop really personalized learning experiences that will help to address the discrepancies in education today where you know there isn't that ability to get it to a one-size-fits-all approach. So really bringing up people who need personalized experiences, I think there's a lot of opportunity in that space.
2: Okay. And Alondra, round it out for
4: us. Yeah, sure. I mean, my answers are, so I, I come here from um, the Institute of, of Advanced Study where I'm a professor, but I spent the last two plus years um, in the leadership of the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy. So I think um, that the science examples are tremendously important. Alpha Fold is one I use anytime I'm asked this question. I think it's tremendously important. Um, I think, uh, you, you know, the, the sort of don't look up um, success that we've just had, sort of the DART mission that NASA just successfully completed was done with years of years of artificial Intelligence simulation and modeling that allowed um, the the sort of. Um you know, kicking of an asteroid off its uh, yeah. a- off its orbit. Um, that will, you know, it's a planetary defense system is tremendously um, important. Obviously, uh, that we've been using AI and continue to use it um, for climate change and for climate prediction. So um, there's lots of really great, I think, applications, particularly um, in the science space. I will say, you know, the concern is as we get closer to people, and I'm sure that we'll probably will have that conversation as well. Um, uh, but yeah.
2: Okay, now my second part of this question what is your greatest fear with this shift
3: relating to generative AI? Yes, okay. Um. I, you know, I, when I, so I have 30 years of background in the tech space, and I didn't. It's not in machine learning or artificial intelligence. In fact, uh, five years ago, when I was interviewing um, at what's now Google DeepMind, I had to make the decision: was this the field? Was this the organization? Was this the technology that I wanted to spend this kind of final stage of my company career at? And I really felt a moral calling because I thought if I can bring my experience of bringing new technologies into the world, then I'd like to bring that to an organization that I felt could could do it in a a positive way. But I the questions I asked myself was like, oh, could I put my daughters to sleep at night? No, and them knowing what mommy's like, you know, what did mommy work on? And I think that really um, raised a lot of questions for me of like, what could go wrong? And it's pretty easy you know, thanks to a lot of movies and sci-fi books, we have, we can imagine things that we might not have otherwise imagined and on the heels of other technology transformations. So I think for me, it's like right now, um, I can't imagine it, it it, does it scare me, yes. And I think to Alondra and and Christina's point earlier, we need to be having the conversation so we don't go down that path. It's a a nice cautionary tale, Um, so that's you thought
2: about sort of the professional and the moral side of this when you went into, and maybe just for our audience too, could you explain
3: what you're doing and how DeepMind relates to Google, because okay. let may not know. Yeah, um, so in, in my job, first of all, let me start with uh, DeepMind. DeepMind was acquired, started in 2010 as an AI research lab. We're headquartered in London, if you can't tell by my accent, um, but I moved over from Silicon Valley to join uh, DeepMind. It was acquired by Google in 2014, and we recently merged within um, Google all the AI research organizations into a single or- organization called Google DeepMind. Um, I'm chief operating officer and my job as COO is to oversee how we organize uh, how we organize ourselves to deliver to our our mission as well as all the work around governance and responsibility and then how we partner with the external world both to share our knowledge and expertise around ai as well as bring diverse perspectives back in so that the technology we're working on um, can have the type of positive impact that we aspire to have great
2: um, christina i'll ask sort of the double header to you what are you most afraid of in terms of Generative AI, the possibilities of it, and explain your work at IBM.
1: Also, what you focus on. Sure. Um, on the first question, I think this is a the capability and the possibilities of this technology is forcing us for the first time in a long time to really think about. Human, like what it means to be a human and what we're going to use technology for and not use it for. I think often we just have been marching down the path of there's a, technolog- a technological solution to something and we should adopt it. We should constantly be looking to adopt new technologies and use them in our companies, in our lives, whatever that may be. And now I do think that we need to back up and start questioning what should we be using this technology for? Remember to keep humans at the center. So it's less about the technology and the risks associated with that from my perspective, but the risks associated with what humans do with the technology that is concerning me.
2: So similar to that, I don't know if anyone was at that first um, panel, but the humans you're worried about, not necessarily the AI, AI in human hands. That may be sort of a theme that's emerging. Alondra, are you worried about that? What is your biggest fear that this Uh, could become?
4: Sure. I mean, I think the biggest fear is that we will squander the opportunity to use these technologies and to steer them in a way that can have mutual, you know, maximum benefit. Mm -hmm. And that we don't use this window of opportunity that we have now um, to create the guardrails and the things that we need um, to make sure that the technologies are used in the way that we want to use them. So my fear would be that we create... AI systems and tools and use them in enterprises and ways that, um, and introduce them in ways that make people distrustful and so that we're never able to sort of fully maximize uh, their use and so that's not a... um, uh, What does that look like? Well, it looks like um, you know uh, facial recognition technology that is um, inaccurate and it's not a fully effective, and that is deployed um, in the world, and uh, and is you know more dangerous for I think um, certain communities than than others for both technical and social reasons, and that we continue to use it and don't fix it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that I worked on at the White House is a pol- kind of a draft policy document called the Blueprint for the AI Bill of Rights. The first of those principles is that effective should be both safe and effective. So a facial recognition technology system um, that is failing to to do its work correctly is is neither safe nor effective. So I I worry that we will create, you know, there I know the panel this morning talked a lot about misinformation and disinformation. Obviously um, AI systems and tools can really do that at scale and at a velocity that we've not experienced before. And that doesn't, it won't necessarily take a lot of expertise right. or kind of anyone can do it potentially. Um, and so you know, if we're not mindful, I think that we will be introducing transformative, powerful mm-hmm. technology in which people feel um, uh, fearful um, and right. don't feel excited about.
2: These are such great answers to begin because you all believe in the opportunity, but I think told the audience that it's very nuanced and we're at this critical moment, right? As you said, Lila, the reason you decided to do this work is because you have a moment in time right now to set it on the right path. Are you encouraged by what you're seeing so far, the conversations that are happening in Washington, the collaboration between private and public and you know Sam Altman going to Congress, not being, it's felt way more collaborative than what we've seen between big tech and Congress over the last 10 years. Do you think, are you optimistic? We are on the right path to harness the opportunity of this shift?
3: Yeah, we're still very early in this. So yes, um, I'm very hopeful. I'm I'm generally an optimistic person. uh, And I'm pleased to see the conversations happening. I think it's going to take a lot more though Mm. and this isn't an easy and this isn't easy right and it's not going to be a silver bullet so it's going to take that type of sustained conversation and uh i'm you know delighted to see i think what alondra mentioned as well like the the in the us some of the work that's happening but ai is not a technology that you can confine to any one Uh, country, and there's no national boundary. So we're having similar conversations in the UK, where I've been participating in the UK AI Council and advising the government. There's work in the EU. And I think what's really important here is how do we have international collaboration between governments and the industry, and also civil society. If this technology is going to have the type of transformative impact uh, and benefit that we hope it can have, we're going to need to include a lot more people Mm -hmm. in these conversations that traditionally haven't had a voice in the development of the technology.
2: That's really hard to do though, to get everyone on the same page. Um, Eric Schmidt this morning, he said that, you know, the US is set to keep its leadership here because it's more unfettered. What they're doing in Europe and China is, has the possibility to stifle this transformative technology. Um, So in your opinion, Christina, should we be working? Should we be a little bit more wary? Full steam ahead, is that the right way to Go right now to keep that leadership or do you give something up by doing that also?
1: Yeah I mean I think you know I I recently testified in front of Congress as well on this topic and and I shared that I think you don't have to you can have innovation and you can have responsible technology and you can have competition all at the same time. Um, But we have to, a lot of what we're talking about today is like companies have to be accountable for the technology that they're deploying and they have to make decisions about whether this is something you can and should deploy and governments need to foster conversations among not just uh companies or a small set of companies or just technologists like they have to be societal conversations Mm -hmm. right these are issues that are bigger than just the technology which comes back to my point about what am i so afraid of the most that you know thing that i'm afraid of is misuse i don't think there's been enough focus in a lot of these conversations and particularly in the technology world on what are the trusted technologies like how do we do things like ensure the ai that's being deployed is being uh, deployed in a transparent way, so you always know when you're interacting with AI, that you're disclosing things about the models and about the data used to train the models so that users can make decisions about you know, whether they're gonna use it or not based on what they know the data is Because a lot of this comes back to the data, and frankly, a lot of the data you know, is not fair, yeah. right? It's not comprehensive, or not it correct. has a lot of false yeah. you know, mm-hmm. uh, information in it. So these are the kinds of issues that I'm very glad to see generative AI having us yep. focused on having conversations about, because a lot of us, I mean I know all of us, we've been doing this for a couple of yeah. years now. So, so I've been covering big tech on the Hill for you know many years
2: now, and it comes down to a lot of political grandstanding, a lot of political theater, Does it feel different to Alondra with this, this time around generative AI? They're not just trying to, you know, put Zuckerberg on stand and sort of ask him questions for their constituents do you feel positive that they're trying to understand it, that these guardrails, should they go into place are best done in the public or the private sector?
4: I do think it's a very different moment and that the people's sort of attitudes and willingness to collaborate in Washington really reflect that. Um, I think that it's certainly the case that um, there's lessons learned about social media, the lack of regulation to the extent that it was regulated, whether or not it was done correctly or incorrectly. So I think there's a sense of humility um, uh, in Washington, both on the Hill and in the executive branch about this. There's also, um, I think, an important sense that this is an everybody's policy issue. So um, I think even uh, in your coverage or conversations that you all would have had in Washington would have been with sort of tech policy people in a very narrow way. Yep. Um, and it is clearly the case, I mean, the, the, the hearing that you're talking talking. talking about that Christina participated in with with Sam Altman and Gary Marcus really suggests that this is a domestic and international policy issue of large scale and that people get that. And so um, I think it's been encouraging to see legislators really responding to that um, and understanding that any kind of policy issue that they work on really probably has a cross cut with artificial intelligence even as as it's used now or might be used in the future. And I think the other encouraging thing from that hearing, we'll just take that as an N of one. Um, is that, you know, the staffs had briefed those, their principles very well. I mean, it was, yeah. there was not as much grandstanding. The questions were very good. They were sophisticated. They were smart. The answers were good. Um, and I, so I think that demonstrates that people are doing their homework um, and taking this uh, very seriously um, as well. But a lot more remains to be done. I mean, this is, um, because it is an issue that cross-cuts every other policy issue, there are some things that we can use, there's some regulatory powers, levers that things can be used now, and then there's going to be policy imagination and innovation that needs to happen um, in this space as well, only some of which is regulation. There's all sorts of other things that, that need to happen as well.
2: So this discussion we've had over the last five minutes or so, it's incredibly encouraging, it's optimistic. Let me step back again and ask, does it matter? Has Have we sort of, taking the genie out of the bottle. Is it possible to regulate something that is growing so fast, that is growing more powerful? The anecdote on the last panel, I think, is a human hears a billion words in their lifetime. These models, right, Lila? They hear trillions. Can we we properly regulate this space? And we know how long it takes to get, even though the intention is there, politics in Washington
3: make it so that it's hard to do this stuff, put those guardrails in place. I mean, just... technology is um so important that it we have to regulate it and we have to regulate it well doesn't um, it mean we have uh, there's there's work to be done i think there's it, it, i one thing to remember is uh yes the technology is going to become even more general more capable it's going to go multimodal so we're still it may feel um like all of a sudden this has hit but as mentioned uh, by my colleagues this has but we've been working on all of this for a while and in the world right now a lot of people are know that they're interacting with um ai through a generative ai chatbot um, but there has there's so much potential for it to be so much more and more beneficial uh and because of that, like, if we, if we believe that it can help us fight climate, if it can help us fight disease, if it can add economic, uh, drive economic prosperity, then it's our responsibility to lean into these conversations sooner rather than later, and to stick with it. Yep.
4: I, I would add um, that, you know, there are kind of concerns and harms that are happening now with technology. Yep. So I mentioned facial recognition technology, false arrest. Um, there are, compl- you know, complications with regards to hiring pools um, and recruitment tools and the use of the technologies there. And it's also the fact that even BARD, chatgpt GPT, let's use all the brands, mm-hmm. so it's not to single out a single brand, they're not quite ready for prime time. I mean, you know, the hallucinations are a problem. If you watched um, the 16 Minutes segment with our colleagues from Google, they went back and fact-checked what they were told about economic data, it was wrong, right? There's, you know, reporting every day. There was Um, whole presentations using an app. Yeah, and so there are sort of legitimate concerns. And I think, you know, whether or not regulation has worked in the past, to the extent you know, that all of us who raised their hand here and said we think it's a net positive, the net positive, we've got to get it there. Yeah. And right now the tools are very early stage and it's exciting, and, and but we've got to be willing to put in the time and the money and the energy to, to make sure they're, they're ready.
2: Christina, yeah. is it big tech that is going to shape these tools? The companies that have been working on this for a long time that are having partnerships um, across the space, or do you think that, It's an incumbent, a new company that comes in and develops the space. Who is going to own it when we get there, whether that's 5, 10, 15 years from now?
1: Yeah, that's an interesting question. But on the point of just coming back to like the point of regulation, because regulation will to some extent determine that potentially, right? If we're locking in a regulatory model that solidifies the lead for a small number of incumbents, or if we're going more into the open source realm. But I would say, um, just backing up on regulation and the real risks today, you know, government agencies in the US, for example, have already said, you know, look, AI is not a shield from liability. If you're using AI in an HR context and you're discriminating, or it's having a disparate impact on a particular population, you're responsible for owning that. So already today, deployers of AI have to have principles in place and rules in place that ensure that the AI that they're using is not violating existing law, whether that be in the space of financial decisions, in the space of HR or employment decisions, these really high-risk uses of the technology. So you have to have rules in place today um so i think we're still answering these questions about what it looks like Um, but what we've been advocating for at ibm is let's focus on the risks that they're playing out today on real people and apply a stricter set of regulatory requirements in these high-risk uses of ai
2: so the regulatory bodies right now, the FTC the DOJ have this reputation for being hard on m a activity, especially with the big tech players. We talk about maybe i don 't know if you think we should be protecting some of the incumbents from being gobbled up by big tech but what Microsoft did with OpenAI was so interesting, right? You would think that if that was a merger or an acquisition, it wouldn't have gone through. Instead, it was this $10 billion investment that gave it all the power and access. Compute. It was a compute investment. Mm-hmm. Compu- exactly, and, and also you imagine that OpenAI couldn't exist without that compute power, right? Lila, someone who works at sort of a competitor, Google, who they've been in this sort of AI arms race, what did you make of that?
3: Well, and, you know, when DeepMind was uh, a startup, um, one of the challenges that the organization faced was this: how do you um, to do this type of long-term research requires a level of investment, um, and that's where the partnering with Google came in. Um, with the the acquisition in 2014 and I would say that right now we're all working collaboratively as an industry of looking at how what is our responsibility in developing this technology so one of the things just to go back to something Christina was talking about um, we're thinking about pioneering responsibly this effort is like we have to be having our own internal way of governance like there's the external world but we have to have this internally what governance mechanisms do we have as an organization Um, how do we think about our responsible responsibility related to research and then deployment and impact and how do we bring that impact back in? And I think it's, all of us are going, all the fellow travelers in this space of artificial intelligence right now are going through very similar uh, journeys and we're having these conversations with government and civil society so that we can share best practices because I think as an industry we realize that it's important to be talking about how do we be innovative and bold but also still be responsible.
2: I wanna kind of pick up on a conversation we had um, in the last panel because it seemed to touch a few nerves and I didn't get a straight answer from my <laughs> panelists. So I'm gonna try and ask you guys. I wanna look at the question of ChatGPT or BARD or generative AI in the education system. We had a student in the last panel say, you know, my colleagues are using it to write their essay so and so. And the question I asked the panelists that I wanna ask you as well, Alondra, I'll start with you on the end. At what age do you think we should start introducing these chatbots to kids?
4: Oh, I don't, I don't think it's about age. I think as soon as they can, as soon as you would have introduced a typewriter to them, or as soon as their parents allow them to use screens. Um, I think, but we need to think about what it's, what we're using it for. So, in the same way, you wouldn't just give your child an iPad and say, go about it, or you don't just allow them to watch anything on cable. I mean, I think those are very, the conversations that, that we need to have. I would also say that we need to be thinking about what, how, before we w- spin the tools out, like what do we want in the education space? What are teachers want? How do we help teachers um, as, uh, the, the, I mean, this is just a microcosm of the bigger question. So I think for me, the bigger question around these technologies is like, what do we want them to do for us? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that we should be able to have sort of collective collaborative conversations about what, what that is. And in the space of education, um, that means how do we help teachers before the tools are released to produce the modules and the mm-hmm. discussion sets and these sorts of things so you don't have to have a panic on the nightly news ABC 7 with people saying the school board has shut down all of the yeah. technology <laughs> in the school um, there could have very easily been I think a different kind of conversation about that it could have been you know news coverage in schools with them saying we've got these exciting modules we got from the company and we're rolling this out with the students and so uh, you know we just need to take this opportunity to slow down, have some forethought, work collaboratively to think about what we're trying to accomplish in classrooms, and work to help teachers, professors accomplish that.
2: Well, Christina, do we have time to slow down? Students are already using this. I think about my own seven-year-old, if I should show him what this thing is. And there's the idea too, that if they start using it at a young age, it takes away their ability for creative thought. What do you think for your child, niece, nephew, whatever it is, would you give them those tools right now?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. One, I, I don't encounter every day in my job as an enterprise technology company, so it's not a space we're in, but as my personal views, Um, Look, I mean, it's out, right? Uh, and, And I think that the more we can teach children and those who are supervising children, like parents and educators, who are sort of caught in the middle of this whole thing, I think our children will be able to figure it out a lot more quickly, In some cases, then, you know, the middle ground of the parents and the teachers that really need to be able to distinguish between what's generated by an AI and what isn't and need to ensure that they are um, properly advising students about what they can be used and telling them when it's not okay, by the way, to use it because they're not going to learn some foundational skills, like writing on their own and structure. So I think that's really critically important. Um, I don't think we're going to slow down development. So, we got to speed up what we're offering to the educators in the world. And then I think companies that are deploying these kinds of technologies, you know, it's one thing to have a policy that says don't use this if you're under 18. We have to recognize that that's absolutely baloney. I if I could say that, right? I mean, the kids are using it. They're using it to generate essays and various other things today. So what is the responsibility on those who are deploying those technologies? What do they owe to the educators, to the community, to help enforce those rules and provide education and the like if they're putting technologies out there?
2: Lila, last word. I mean, like you have sort of a kid's YouTube. Could you have a kid's Bard? I'll use Bard, not chat. Well,
3: um, actually, if I can take a step back and think about education and learning overall, this is an area I'm particularly passionate about. Yes. Um, as a, first of all, as a child of immigrants, um, and I've really felt the importance of education and what it means to have um, more equitable access. And it's been a thread throughout my career, so, um, you know, whether I was at Intel uh, leading our education platform group uh, globally, whether it was um, in the startup Coursera and being the first business executive, or my um, nonprofit, Team for Tech, which was my Aspen Crown Fellow project, actually, um, which focuses on education technology and underserved communities. Like This is something I'm personally passionate about. And so now it's like all my worlds are colliding. I think that what's important for us in thinking about education and and learning is this is a life, we have to think about the entire continuum of learning. So in like K-12 how, students' understanding to the point uh, made of like, how do you use this technology responsibly? How do you get better at asking prompts? How do you quote your sources? Um, I have a daughter with dyslexia, and it's, uh, I you know, honestly, as a parent, I have like a little bit of mixed, you know, how did I learn, and putting that on her, but at the same time, like, I see her confidence bloom because she's now able to express things in a way that even six months ago, with the help, so with, with, with the help of wow. uh, with, uh, technology, in a moderated way. And we're talking generative AI, a chatbot? Uh, in, yeah, and in just um, getting the, uh, finding sometimes the words yeah, to yeah. do it. But, you know, she also uses things like grammar check and other technologies. So I think it's more of like, it's a tool that's in her Toolkit now, and not you know in and of itself, but also within uh, Google DeepMind, we've done a lot of work to try to make sure that we're not leaving people behind and further driving a divide. So we've we've um, we're doing work with the Raspberry Pi Foundation. If people are familiar with age 11 to 14, on how do you uh, talk about AI like experience AI? So we build that into the curriculum, starting with underserved communities. We've also done work in lifelong learning with like women in ML or Uh, lesbians uh, in tech, Um, we're doing work in Africa to do a master's program for uh, AI that scales across the continent based out of South Africa and it's all about education is going to be important these are the generations that are going to live with the technology we're developing if they don't have the tools if it's not equitable access if they don't know how to responsibly use it we're creating more of a problem so we need to get them we need to get these generations thinking about how they can use the technology in a responsible way.
2: I love how that loops back to your first answer. Why you're doing yeah. this? That was a nice, nice cycle. And I'm going to open it up to Q&A in just a moment. But I want to ask you as a question because I've been thinking about this all morning. I heard it this morning. Um, it was a question posed by Mark Andreessen of Andreessen Horowitz. He asked, "What would if we had generative AI back in the 1600s? What would it have said about Galileo?" would it have used all the information that existed in that world to say that he was wrong, that the earth is flat, or would it have been able to use all the mathematics, and I don't know what, <laughs> to tell him that he was right? And also, then, we won't go here, but what would the church do? Anyways, that first question though, what do you think, is it possible to know? Because that has huge implications, right? For the era that we're going into, leaning on generative AI to give us answers to questions based on math and what is out there, some misinformation. So I'm
4: going to be very historical and literal. I'm going to put on my professor hat and say the corpus that that the generative AI would have been trained on in 1600 would have been the Bible. And so it would have, I mean, it would not have been a corpus of math and science. Okay. This would have been like sort of pre-enlightenment. And so um, it would have told him probably that he was you were wrong. ready for that question. Um, or certainly, uh, certainly that
1: it was sacrilegious, if <laughs> nothing else. <laughs> Would you agree with that? Yeah, I, I mean, I do. I mean, it comes back to what I mentioned earlier about the data. We all have to be really conscious of what's going into training the large language models of today and the data that we're using to feed it. And if it's you know if we're frozen in time, which we would have been based on you know the content that was fed. But it, would,
2: would it have been able, Lila,
3: to take in his calculations? And I, but no. if you think about it, why why go back to 1600s? Go back 10 years? Sure. Right. Like. If we had even uh, grounded on certain ethics or perspectives of that time, how much has changed? I think that's part of the reason why we need to be having conversations and bringing in diverse perspectives Mm -hmm. um, and thinking beyond just generative AI. Um, I think that's you know there's a lot to be learned from going putting yourself in a time machine and going back, but you really don't have to go back that that far. And that's something that's gonna be really important as we
2: enter into a new election cycle. We can talk about the implications of that too, but I, I do wanna give our audience a chance to ask questions. I'm gonna give my first question to Leslie because I promised you I would at the last session and it was a fantastic question in the blue here. Great,
5: so you use terms like, what is our responsibility? Um, we owe these generations and so I think, I think I did not raise my hand because I don't know that if it's a benefit or like I, I don't know where I land and so I think my question is like what are you doing now to make sure that when we get there wherever there is that the communities that we know are typically on the back end of benefiting actually arrive with us right so It's about access, it's about representation. it's about, it's it's actually not just about access, it's about shaping. Yeah. It's about you you not coming to me when it's done to see how I, you know, what I need, but me being at the table. And so it is why I'm hesitant because when we look at, not AI, but when we look at how the color, the communities of color um, embraced um, the, Um, the COVID shots, the vaccines, they were so far on the end of the information Mm. that it took people a long time to get with it if they wanted to. So my question is, can we learn from some things and what are we doing now?
3: Absolutely. Can I go ahead? Go ahead, please. As an operator, like this is, this is, so important to everything that we do it's how do we bring those outside first of all how do we think about that within the organization as we're building it and that's like even the do we have the right governance models do we have diverse perspectives around the the table you can't have a bunch of researchers talking to each other about a technology so do you have the socio-technical folks do you have diversity and, and views but we do a lot externally and we do that because as much as we'll focus internally, it's still not enough. Um, so we've, one example we've recently done is in partnership with the Aspen Institute, where we did something on, what does it mean to build equitable AI? So we hosted a series of roundtables with people that, like, it wasn't, we deliberately went out and said we need to have constructive conversations of like, what does it even mean to, when we say equitable AI? Can we align on actions and a framework? So we co-published a a report. And I think that's actually, we need to be doing that, like scale that way up. Um, We regularly do sessions. We just did one on education. We're doing some work um, uh, with uh, disabilities as well of like, we know that we have a limited view. So how do we bring, how do we take our AI knowledge, share it, but also bring that voice into the development? When we did our AlphaFold database system, we actually took it out, Uh, we brought in over 35 experts from the field and and also like the neglected disease organizations because we needed to know, was it, should we release it or not? Are what, have we represented enough different views, et cetera. So I think there's so much work that needs to be done, but it is something we're all, I think we're, all our organizations are actively engaging. And it ta- this is where leadership is really critical. Like you need the leadership to provide this space and the accountability internally in order to have this built into the into the culture. A great question, thank you for
2: that. Let's get
3: to another one in the back there. Uh, behind, sorry,
2: and then we can go to you.
1: Um, So, so obviously the genie's out of the bottle and and we need to do a lot and figure this out, but right now, like in the immediate sense, for instance, the election year, which is a pretty important uh, (laughs) category, with all the misinformation from the manipulation AI, manipulation of video, audio, print, everything, the misinformation, how do we source and make intelligent decisions now with all the manipulation out there and all the platforms i mean what is your thought or Great suggestion questions. how you maneuver the truth facts you know
4: alondra do you want to take yeah this? Your i mean so government? you know it's a problem we had with the 2020 election it's a problem that we've had in the 20th century so it's um it's you know we've had to be better consumers and I think better curators of information over time at a kind of faster pace. Um, I will just repeat what I said before, that what we face now is a kind of scale and velocity of misinformation and the fact that lots of different actors who wouldn't have been able to do it before can now do it, deep fakes, video, voice and the like. So I mean there are things that companies can do. We know that for... um, Um, you know, child sex trafficking exploitation materials that you can use digital fingerprinting, you can use um, watermarking and these sorts of things are already being used in that space. Um, You know, the question is whether or not we need to think about putting those in all tools in a really uh, sort of general way. Um, It's expensive. I think there's lots of reasons companies may not want to do it, but, and it's not going to fix the problem. I think part of it is that we need to anticipate that this is going to be a kind of whack-a-mole problem that we're always going to have as the technology changes. Um, but at the very least, I think to have systems um, have to say, you know, this was generated with AI. So Amy Klobuchar and Yvette Clark, um, uh, Congresswoman, or Senator and Congresswoman respectively, have legislation that would basically expand um, existing election campaign laws that would say you would have to disclose on a campaign ad that you've used artificial intelligence. So there are things that we can do. It's not going to solve it, and so if we, if we go into the problem thinking that we're going to fix it for in perpetuity, we're not going to, but there's certainly more that we could be doing in this moment um, to make that the case. I'll also just add, you know, part of the blueprint for the AI Bill of Rights that we worked on in the White House. You know, one of the sort of high aspirational principles there is that you should know when an AI system is being used. So none of this, none of these levers accounts for bad actors, accounts for malicious actors that are that are out to deceive you. Um, but there's a lot more that we could be doing for for um, to help good actors sort of, you know, attest to what they're doing um, using these technologies.
2: Are you more or less worried about this election cycle and the role of misinformation? than you were four years ago, I'll ask each of you that.
4: I don't. I'm, I'm the same. Worried. I mean, you, you know, the the the, the mid journey stuff looks clunky. You know, okay. you've, you, the ads you're seeing. Yep. There was a Canadian example. The person had three arms. You know, that was in the ad. <laughs> in the advertisement. Like a bad so, Photoshop. <laughs> yeah. You know, the Balenciaga Pope. You know, I mean, you know, the the Pope, which is the Pope in the puppy puffy designer jacket, tells us two things. One, it was sort of clunky. There were part. If you looked at the image, you could see very well that it was generated by Well,
2: me. hold on. Who well, knew that was, I didn't well, i will say when yeah. i first saw that picture i thought wow
4: yeah i'm on the other hand this the the sort of reporting on that was um it was a 30 year old construction worker in his house that was just like i'm gonna play around <laughs> with this so it's the two poles it was debunked right? quickly right yeah
1: yeah so and, and i think i would say i'm a little less worried and the reason why i'm a little less worried is because two years ago we weren't having these conversations at the scale at which we're having them today and in one sense that's a good thing because people will be a little more weary of what they a little leery of what you see and, and whether it's true or not true. On the other hand, that's pretty sad that we have to question everything that we see. And I don't know what the answer is in the end. It comes back to a lot of what you recommended in terms of watermarking, which is still a technology that's not fully developed, but needs to be. Like, this is where we need to be spending our time as technology companies to ensure that we are developing technologies to make the output of these models more trustworthy, to ensure that people have a way of determining so you can you know, basically instill trust, so that we're not questioning everything Great. we see and, and, and read. And a quick, quick last word from you, Lila, and we'll get to some more questions.
3: Um, I think they covered it well. I, I also would just um, re- remember that There are elections happening all over the world. uh, And next year is a particularly intense election cycle um, in many places. So I think that's actually, uh, there's, I I think that's probably a little bit more heightened next year because of that. Um, But to the other points, I'm well aligned with their thinking. Um, Question, I skipped over you on the puffy coat here.
5: Hi, thank you so much for this. Um, So so of course, Google and IBM have the size and the resources to have ethics panels and uh, build uh, 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 those kind of conversations into the workflow. But um, the ecosystem is is much bigger than these big companies. Um, Obviously, generative AI is kind of the the tech of the moment. There's a lot of startups, scrappy, you know, venture capital, um, and you know, one of the lessons we might have taken away from social media is that sometimes the ethics can kind of lag behind the money. W- when that's the case, so um, I guess, I guess, uh, in that sense, is that something we should be worried about the kind of the e- the, the, the venture capital ecosystem with, with startups, um, or is you know, this all gets you know, they might get absorbed into the big companies anyway at some point, so it all even out.
2: Who wants to take this.
3: Um, Two big tech people here. Well, I I used to be in venture. I was at Kleiner Perkins, and um, uh, so in venture capital. And um, I do a lot with the startup community, um, both in the U.S. and and Europe. And my point is that responsibility has to be built in from the start. It's not a bolt-on. Like that's when you run into that's when you run into problems. Even at Duke, mind I may have joined five years ago, but the company had AI principles from the very start in 2010 um, that are, that are part of our our governance process. So that's I'm actually actively engaging with a startup community on not the only one. There's lots of people who are doing that because I think everyone these conversations need to happen publicly and they, it needs to be all organizations, nonprofits, everyone use, you know, developing technology around this because that's the only way we're really going to ensure a, a better future and it's part of the reason why we're trying to say where and how can we share best practices. Um, so we may have some of the resources to do some of this, but we've published papers. So we help back our first language model generative language model paper until we had done um, an ethics research paper around the taxonomy of language how do you talk about both the risk and the benefits of this so that it could benefit the entire community i think that's part of
1: how we see yeah and and the other thing i would just add is it's incumbent upon companies that are using that are the deployers. so it's a pretty complicated ecosystem in you know ai Um, but companies that are in the end, deploying these technologies that are gonna touch people, they need to be asking questions of the technology that they're procuring and the providers that they're using, and as Lila said, you know, working on commonly accepted set of practices, like what does an audit look like? We're still working on these kinds of things. What does a conformity assessment look like? Those, you know, uh, the benefit of that research with a, particip- with a broad group of researchers participating in it yeah. from the whole community will help to inform that as we go, and then companies deploying the technologies need to be asking these questions before they're procuring technology.
2: Let's get to another question in the yellow up here.
1: Thank you. I just want to return to elections for a moment because we often talk about our concerns and misinformation, disinformation. And I'm curious, are there opportunities when it comes to elections with this kind of technology, with election administration, or other ways to create efficiencies um, to make sure our elections are, are more trusted, um, work more effectively? I have no idea, but I'm just curious. As we've talked about net benefits and net yeah. net challenges,
4: I only have a, a little information on this. I mean, maybe, I, but I think we're, we're like sort of early stage here. I mean, there's evidence that using some of the chat bots to ask where your voting booth is, or you know, that the information's not entirely accurate. So I think potentially they could be. Um, chatbots themselves could be you know, excellent resources for that, but they're not quite there yet. But I do think there are probably things that you can do potentially at scale, and, you know, Lyle and Christina might talk about with regards to energizing, educating uh, voters and the like.
1: Yeah, I would just say on the cybersecurity front, right, so there are cyber threats to election systems and processes and the like. And one of the, I think, best use cases for this kind of technology is to stay ahead of the threat in the cyberspace. So to be able to real time detect new threats um, and respond to them in an automated way. Uh, and scaling that across enterprises, like across our election system. So that's one area, It doesn't, not just in the election space, but one area in the cyberspace where it could be helpful.
2: I'm glad you bring that up. That's one area we haven't talked about today where a lot of folks see a lot of threats and possibility. Um, let's get another one in this gentleman on the right here.
5: Hi, Um, one of the concerns I have about, I kind of like it. It's a new tool, it's fun to play with and everything. And there's great possibilities, obviously, with science and health and education. But my concern is the amount of energy that's used in order to do this, just like with Bitcoin. And we saw the climate issue that's created by this kind of uh, technology. So when you're speaking about the ethics, how do you, how do you balance it out with mm-hmm. the catastrophe of climate change that's yeah. coming down the tubes
1: so uh, oh just really quickly i mean that's part of what the technology that ibm is looking at is like how do we train models using less energy or how do you train purpose built so we're at enterprise company, so uh, we're not, you know, our clients are not going to use a chatbot in their enterprises that isn't sort of smaller domain specific because you can't, for example, if our client is a bank, they need to trust the output. So they're using essentially smaller purpose-built models. I think that is some of the way that climate change will be addressed. But then coming back to the points we raised earlier about the potential for these large language models, like we have one with NASA that has all the satellite data, Mm -hmm. you know, and that can help to essentially uh, address and proactively respond to climate change because you're monitoring it on such a huge scale. So it can help solve those kind of problems too. So I think it's sort of twofold.
3: And we're doing some work with um, controlling plasma and nuclear fusion reactors, which could actually unlock, it's one of the core safety issues in unlocking um, a new type of energy source. But we're also thinking about how do you build better models and, it, it's very much on everyone's mind right now, yeah. uh, g- given the sustainability goals, even from the UN. So we're all, do, I think, approaching it in similar ways. Better chips, too, right? Yes. It's and better, chip, better technology. Yeah.
4: I, I would just point that at the White House, we did a, um, an energy usage report on Bitcoin and digital assets, um, and I think a lot of the conclusions there are the same here. I mean that that. This is a place where the sort of ethics in the society that we're trying to get to and the innovation can actually be tight, tightly paired. Um, and I think some of the examples that they laid out here about how to innovate and using less energy are exactly the kinds of things we need to be thinking about with the risks and harms and problems that were coming up. How do we use the innovation space as a solution set um, and not as, you know, posing it as, as a contrast um, to, to being able to do innovation and to grow I'm- markets. I'm going to squeeze in one more quick question. If you
2: can make it quick in the back there.
4: Hello, my name is Emilian Delia Gundupe, and I'm a White House Presidential Innovation Fellow. Um, first, I want to say the panel looks great. I love seeing four women up there talking about AI. Um, This question is to Alondra, how do you see us actualizing the AI Bill of Rights and what do you think the government's responsibility is to not only minimize the risk in the space, but also to make sure that vulnerable communities, black and brown folks, aren't left behind? And if uh, Lila wants to add, what do you uh, think that the US can learn from the UK in this space? Thanks. Good question. So the the AI Bill of Rights is five principles, um, data privacy, protection from algorithmic discrimination, um, notice an explanation. You should know when an algorithmic system is being used, an alternative, there should be some alternative or fallback if you want in those systems and that the system should be safe and effective. Very high level, I think not a lot to disagree with. Obviously the devil is in the details of how you get to each of those things through kind of socio-technical apparatuses that are levers and regulations and guidance and policy and, and technical things like assessment and, and auditing. Um, that came out in October, 2022 with um, uh, a, a government sort of paper called a fact sheet, um, and the fact sheet already began Um, to sort of talk about how government could implement that. So the fact sheet came out saying that the Equal um, Employment Opportunity Commission was already looking at how the way, how the um, American with Disabilities Act, for example, applied to the use of AI tools and systems in hiring. Um, It it was already the case that the Department of Health and Human Services was looking at health discrimination and health equity issues with the use of healthcare algorithms and some of the work that they fund as a grantor of research and also in the research that they do as an organization. So it's, and it's already the case, I think um, maybe Christina said this, um, you know, obviously Lena Khan at the FTC has explicitly said, um, you know, that the use of AI tools is not an exemption from the law. So any laws that apply in any of these domains or sectors with ai uh, apply without ai as well Um, and so i think there are things already that government can do it would be great um certainly part of my i have a foothold a toehold in the center for american progress Um, the center for american progress has asked for an executive order to do to effectively implement the ai bill of rights Um, and part what that would do is have government as um, the world's largest uh, employer, the world's largest consumer, and you know a vendor tools in AI help to be an exemplar um, and, and help to sort of change norms um, and and companies with regards to um, you know more equitable, trustworthy AI. With regards to comp, you know this goes back to Leslie's question: um, communities of color in particular. This is the thing that I worry about. I worry that um, I have written in my career about particularly African-American communities as innovators in the space of, human, of genetic screening and counseling, in the space of director consumer genetics, for example, um, and losing the ability for these communities to participate, to gain um, you know, the economic opportunity and to innovate um, because the tools are already causing harm in the communities, I think is a big concern that we should always should be really worried about.
2: On that note, I'm going to end it here, guys. That was amazing. We went over. We could go way over, but I'll refrain from doing that. Thank you all for your great questions and listening. Lila, Christina, Londra, thank you so much for your time. Lila Ibrahim
0: is the Chief Operating Officer of the AI research company, Google DeepMind. She's also the co-founder and chair of education technology nonprofit, Team for Tech. Alondra Nelson is the Harold F. Linder Chair and a professor in the School of Social Science at the Institute for Advanced Study. She's also a distinguished senior fellow at the Center for American Progress. Nelson was formerly Deputy Assistant to President Biden and Acting Director at the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy. Christina Montgomery is Vice President and Chief Privacy and Trust Officer for IBM. She also chairs IBM's AI Ethics Board. She's a member of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce AI Commission and the National AI Advisory Committee, advising the U.S. President and National AI Initiative Office. IBM is a 2023 festival underwriter. Deirdre Bosa is the anchor of TechCheck, CNBC's tech industry franchise. Previously, she was a technology correspondent for CNBC, reporting out of Vancouver, Canada, and covered the markets and economies of London and Singapore. She co-anchored Squawk Box Asia, Squawk Box Europe, and Worldwide Exchange. Today's show was programmed by the Aspen Ideas Festival team and produced by Natalie Jones and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for listening.